everyone. Welcome to Pistons versus Everybody, the Detroit Pistons podcast on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I am your host, Lazarus Jackson, and it is not just me. You get another voice in your earphones today. Joining me from the internet is PD Webb, NBA draft scouting extraordinaire. How are you doing, sir? Wow, what quite the introduction. Uh, I'm doing well. I'm excited to talk about this uh, very interesting basketball team and where it can go in the future. So before we start talking about the interesting basketball team that only you think is interesting, I did want to ask you like how you got into scouting because you flew onto my radar last year, but before that I had never seen you before and I kind of pride myself on like knowing who people are. And so like where where'd you where'd you come from? How'd you get into this? Um so I've worked in basketball for like most of my adult life now, like coaching and, and doing training. And uh I started writing for real like last Christmas, um, I guess. And uh, once the pandemic hit, it was like, well, what am I going to do? You know, everything's closed down. So I started to just write, you know, long form draft analysis and trying to think about uh, basketball in a little different framework. So I guess I've been doing this full time for almost two years now. Um, It's certainly interesting. No, I, I, I bet. Who, who edits your stuff? Can I give them 20 bucks? Those things are like really long. Yeah, unfortunately, the, that person is me. Um, okay, so the, you know what that means. Now I have to plug your Patreon where people can, in fact, give you 20 bucks. Yeah, they can. If people uh, so choose, they can give me any amount of money. If they have zero dollars, you can read all my work. Uh, I pride myself on, on it being available to everyone if they so choose because nothing... Uh, it's more painful than uh, not being able to access the basketball content you want. I'd say that as a person who uh, has never been able to come up with the money for ESPN Plus in my life. Um, yeah. No, I, I mean, that's that's very generous of you. I don't know if that's a money-making strategy, but it's extremely generous of you. And I say that as somebody who uh, has paid for ESPN Plus since they... I used to pay for the magazine, right? And they used to give you the magazine. If you pay for the magazine, they would give you Plus and Insider. And so I got like, I got grandfathered into that. That's like been like five years and they like never have taken it back. And so, yeah, that's how I, that's how I I mean, that's a sweet gig if you can get it. I mean, the the rip ESPN, the magazine. Yeah. RIP ESPN, the magazine. I miss them. Anyway. Detroit Pistons. Let's let's talk about our fighting Detroit Pistons. So, uh, obviously, I want to talk to you about the 2021 draft. Um, I think the thing that contextualizes this draft at the top for me the best is that there is Cade Cunningham at one, almost universally, near universally. We've got like a 98% approval rating at, at number one. And at five... We've got Jonathan Kuminga uh, very much in the we, we got to put him here uh, role. And between that, it's just a battle of styles and preferences. Um, and so if you're if you're the Pistons, if you're someone who casually observes the Pistons, how are you thinking about ordering the other two Jalen's and Evan Mobley in between those two guys? Um, yeah, I, I think that that's a, that's a fascinating question because part of how I view the draft is that like big boards are big boards aren't necessarily helpful. Um, and like talking to NBA teams, like you'll find people who do not have Kate Cunningham number one, 
because their team doesn't necessarily need a ball handler. Mm-hmm. Um, I happen to disagree with that idea, but like I understand why for four teams they would, given their specific uh, you know developmental situation, their team construction, um, how they believe their pathway to winning is best served. Like not having Kid Cunningham number one is an understandable thing. It may not be where I am personally. But I also like don't have my job hanging on that particular decision in the way that you know some teams do. Um, I, I think that for the Pistons, um, when I look at this team, um, I see a team that like is in desperate need of sense-making, um, they're first in three-point assisted rate, which is great until you realize the inverse of that is three-point unassisted rate, which I think they're like the only team below 10%, uh, they're 9.8% unassisted threes made, um, and like that sort of has a knock-on effect where everyone is sort of underqualified for their current role um you know on a on the best team you sort of have um you know players who could handle 22 usage but they're at 18 and and everyone is sort of trying to make the most out of the slim opportunities they have on bad teams you kind of have the inverse where um players are are very much trying out new things and uh you know probably handling the ball more than they should shooting a little more than they should or you know guarding more positions than they should on a winning team um and if the Pistons can have a player who knocks everybody down a peg sort of universally, then the team suddenly makes a ton more sense. Um, Because to me, that's like the thing that this team desperately needs is I think it has an identity in terms of what it would like to do, Uh, but it doesn't necessarily have a way of uh, making that identity actionable based on the pieces they have. No, you're, that makes a ton of sense. They, they do need a drink stir. They need a capital S star in that sense to knock everybody down into the roles that they are perhaps qualified for. Um, the question becomes like, is it's like Cade's obviously that guy. Yes. Do you, do you think it's like Jalen green would help in the sense that he is going to get up and convert some of those uh, unassisted threes that you talked about? But will he slot into a role that's, you know, something other than like 25 point per game guy? It's like, can he be, can he be more than that? And that's, that's a tough bar to clear. If he can't be more than that, I, I, I understand it and I respect it. And that's still a good player and a worthy pick in the top five. But uh, I, I struggle to see how that helps slot, how that helps make his teammates better and help them slot into those roles that they're qualified for, right? I think once you get past Cade, then, like, using Cade is like, this is this the most obvious solution. Once you get past the most obvious solution, the next question you have to ask is, what do you have currently? And I think that you'll find people who are still extremely high on um, Killian's ability to be a primary. Mm-hmm. And if you believe that Killian is, in like, an out-and-out primary, then Jalen Green makes a ton of sense, because then you can sort of run these two guard sets and then like green doesn't necessarily have to have uh, his off the dribble shooting, his downhill explosion and playmaking for others. Two of those three is a very, very good number two in terms of like a load of decision-making. And then it does knock everybody down a place. It's just that having, you know, another year of Killian as a decision maker um, will expose that primary primary a little bit more. I think that that's the, to me, the, the second, like, the second most sure bet would be 
like if I were to, to plot out all of the, the circumstances the, the Pistons could have in the top five or top six or whatever, like that would be the probably the one where I would be second most comfortable. Um, is is uh, Killian primary, Jalen secondary? Even though their usages like will probably be more, it's the decision making is how I think about primary duty. Is like who has to make the most choices? That's your primary. Yeah, it's, I can I can see a sense in where Killian runs the team for the first forty three minutes, and then you turn the ball over to Jalen Green and see and see where that gets you late in games. Yeah, I mean, I think that it also. Uh, having having Jalen also makes a lot of sense because then you can go to like the two guard lineups, like the the two guard fronts that I think Killian is most comfortable in at this point. Um, uh, as we saw him in France, and and like I think when he's most successful with the Pistons, it's when he's attacking, uh, not necessarily out of straight spread pick and roll. It's after one ball reversal or when there's a a, a certain alignment. Um, and like if you can get that replicated, where you have two two sides of action rather than him attacking straight downhill. Um that really makes things easier for him, which um, looking at his advanced numbers is something he does need. Is is his like I, I was extremely high on Killian and I like literally nothing that's happened this year has discouraged me, which I think is a thing that like I was pretty shocked by was how many people were like, is Killian a bust? I was like, wait what? Like he got hurt. And like diving into the numbers, they're not great. Like I'm not gonna lie to you that they're great. But like he's taking a lot of really bad shots and he's turning over the ball a lot and he looks like a rookie, but he's still like creating assists, creating good opportunities. And like, despite having a terrible turnover percentage, still has a good assist turnover. Like still is shooting. Okay. On threes, even though he's str- he still has the struggles uh, doing catch and shoots. Like there are, there's a real signal of like what's going to be good. In him, it's just that like he had a very strange rookie year in an already strange rookie situation, um, and I think that it, if you take out the idea that you have to compare him to Mello, um, you're going to have a much different opinion uh, because like that's not particularly fair yeah. <laughs> to compare anyone to like the usually every draft has one extraordinarily good player, and mm-hmm. then everything beyond that is require some tinkering or time or the right situation. And like, if you basically are like, okay, Melo's the one here. Melo's the one that's like guaranteed to be very, very good. Um, and you take everything else with like, okay, set him aside. Let's look at how he compares to everybody else. Like you can look at Anthony Edwards, you know, advanced numbers and like, well, there is a lot of eye popping stuff. There's also some extreme concern. Um, so when you look at him in, in the light of the, everybody else in the draft, I don't think that it's fair to consider him a bust or even that like, this is out of line with, the expected types of struggles he was going to have. I think the main frustration that people have had with Killian is not the, it's, it's what he's not right. He, I, I still think he has primary equity as well, but right now he's looked very tentative around the rim. He is, he's, he's trying to get to the things he's comfortable with, which is not, um, helping him like expand the range of what he's comfortable with. He's settling a lot for for floaters and stuff. When he could, he could be attacking the rim a little bit better. He could be trying to get into the bodies of uh, of like rim protectors and stuff a little bit better. And I think if if he did some of that, he would of course he would you know he would fail more often. But he'd also like you know get to the free throw line more. And that that's impossible on his current shot diet. As you can see, it, his free throw rate. 
But he's also played under 500 minutes. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the other thing, yeah. The difficulty is that he's not on the timeline of other rookies, where it's like Anthony Edwards has been force-fed minutes and force-fed shots, and so now there's starting to be a curve as he's just starting to learn what's happening more. And Killian, because of the injury, because of how his rookie season played out, like that's going to happen at the very, very end of the year. And people are already going to discount that. And so now that the time that we're turning to like, what do we have? We're still under the five minute, 500 minute threshold, which, you know, for a lot of people isn't always meaningful. It's especially not meaningful when the team is also churning and uh, there's so much other weirdness happening. Like <laughs> I, I just, his struggles were always going to look roughly like this. Like the, the percentages might not be the same. Like he obviously could finish better than, than where he has, is at the rim. But like he was never going to be an excellent rim finisher his, his rookie year. But I think that there is enough meaningful good, um, specifically in, in his movement style, specifically in how well he's able to read the floor, considering that the floor is not spread, uh, considering that like these lineups are not what I would consider ideal for a young guard. Yes. Um, and like he doesn't look um, like there's a specific way that busts look where it's like, Oh, they shouldn't be here. And like, I've never, I've never in none of the minutes I've watched where I'm like, Oh yeah, he does not belong. This is a real problem. It's like, Oh yeah, this is what a uh, slightly over their head rookie is. Who's like being discouraged probably from taking the shots that make him most comfortable in a lineup. That's not well suited to him. Uh, and yeah, on a team that's like also like sort of trying to lose games, like valiantly try to lose games, but like they're not being set up for short term success. Yeah, they, they are trying to win games. They are just playing with a lot of guys who don't know how. Mm-hmm. And so that that is uh, giving us predictable results. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the thing with Killian is that like he is, because he has such a, a malleability to his game, he fits really well next to another primary or another, you know, as the secondary to a primary, as long as they can shoot. Like, I don't, it's, especially if they have ball handling ability. Like you put him next to Cade, you put him next to uh, like Cade a little more so than than Jalen Green because Jalen Green's uh, Cade has a, a little better handle and mm-hmm. more comfortable with him having the ball in it. But like the like separating that burden makes his decision making process easier. And I think that like by having two good ball handlers um, it, with shooting, it it allows for uh, less pressure on a young guard. Um, I also think that, like, man, it would just be nice to have more shooting. Like, the thing is that the like the Pistons, uh, their their shooting numbers are like very middle of the road. Um, but that's also because they have two guys who can really, really shoot the ball. If you filter them out, it's it gets very dire, yeah, very quickly. Yeah. Well, and that's to steer it a little bit back, I guess, to the twenty twenty one draft. That's what worries me about Suggs, is that I am not sold on his shooting ability right now. And so I, I definitely think like uh, he's got primary equity. If he figures it out, um, you could definitely be a, a primary ball handler in this league, but you would be coerced into putting him and Killian together. And I don't necessarily know if that is what is, I don't know if that's how you get the best out of both of them is putting them next to one another. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't think that it would be a, like, I don't think that it's it not just a start, problem, but it's just not ideal. It's not, yes. a, it is not a synergistic relationship to have them as the, as your guards. Um, I think my biggest issue is that like Suggs doesn't necessarily have the handle he needs to. 
Um, and it's in a different way than like Killian's issue is that like he is explosive, but he's not like he's explosive in a very specific way. And the type of guard who can cover him is also going to be able to cover subs. Like they're not stylistically different enough. Um, and like the, the jumper to me is, is like going to be fine. He takes uh, a little bit of a difficult shot to eye at times. Um, he also played in a, uh, about the best context we'll ever see a guard play in. Um, you know, uh, playing the game of like what would happen if you swapped any guard with, with Jalen Suggs is certainly an interesting thought experiment. Um, I just don't necessarily see this as like a long-term home run. Um, like, because you're going to have to remodel the rest of the roster around it doesn't solve enough of the problems. Like, I think it'd be good, but then you'd have to, you know, wonder, like, how many other players in that starting lineup would you need to tinker with? Like, the knock-on effect of, of having a less synergistic guard backup pairing, or guard pairing, and then, like, how do you move with it going forward? I just don't, I don't necessarily love it, and that's not a knock-on on Soka's talent. It's just the relationship between those two. Uh, which I, we're going to talk about was when we talk about Kuminga and the, and the the forward staple, I assume. Yeah. So I did want to talk a little bit about the relationship between Cade and Killian, just because like, obviously that's the ideal situation. I wanted to lead with a question that was not Cade, just because like we, we agree that Cade is the, the ideal situation. But then if you, if you get lucky enough to the point where you get to put those two guys together, uh, is the rest of the roster, uh, does that offer enough of what they need? Is, you know, Sadiq Bey is probably a good enough shooter. Is like Jeremy Grant and Isaiah Stewart enough, you know, spacing, rim pressure uh, defensively to get you, you know, where you need to go with both of those guys on the floor? Um, I think that you'd probably want to take Stewart out just for like, in, in terms of like as the core five, he probably wouldn't necessarily be the guy um, because he doesn't shoot at a high enough volume. Like, yes, he's made progress, but he's not like bombing. Um, and I think that, I think that with Cade, you can always play smaller. Um, it with like Cade and Sadiq, that's going to be a, Cade and Sadiq. Jeremy is a very strong forward group. So you can either like slide in, uh, you know, a less rim protecting big who shoots or another guard and start sliding around on, uh, you know, slide around the matchups on defense. I think that, I think that with Kate, the, the core conceit is that you can basically use him to craft any team around him you kind of want because you can, he can slide up and down uh, like defensive assignments, uh, his his best defensive skills, his team defense. Um, offensively, you could use him as like a, a – we saw him like, you know, have these games where he's taking 30 shots, 25 shots. Where it's like That seemed like madness if you watched his high school's career or like his best games, he took like seven shots. And he was done by halftime. It did just marvelous stuff. Um, so I think that it, I wouldn't say it's maximalized, but it'll work. Um, it'll work on offense and it'll work on defense just because there's so much good in terms of strength and length and, and, uh, and rotational ability. Uh, I worry about, you know, long-term ceiling in terms of like how many playoff series you win with Isaiah Stewart playing like 30 minutes versus like 22. Um, but if you're going from, we have the number one pick to like, how does this work in the second round of the playoffs? Like you're doing something incredibly well. Yeah. Let, let's get to the point where, how do we get out of the second round playoffs is a problem first. Let me, let me get to that point before, before I start deeming that like a real issue that I got to deal with. Yeah. And also like, I I find center to be the uh, easiest problem to solve in the league where like you can 
pretty much find a, a different look very easily. Like guards, guards and wings are a little bit harder. Um, at guards at the high end and wings just all over because like it's so valuable. But like because there are so many replacement level bigs, if you wanted to swap out, you know your ninth big or your ninth man big for a different style of ninth man big who works better with your your primary or with the offensive run, that's really easy to do. Mm-hmm. And like that should always be factored into how team construction works. Is just like scarcity of that style of player and you know how that works with the game going forward so with with that in mind then i want to shift to evan mobley who would make if he was the piston selection would make back-to-back years in which they used a first round selection on a center and we just got done talking about how that's probably the least valuable position right now what makes mobley different and worthy of that selection because you can, because Evan Mobley is at once like a generational defensive center prospect, and also you can use him offensively as a wing. Um, usually, you find like guys who are um, inversion candidates. You know, are uh, are fives on offense, and then like have to be hidden on defense. But he, he, if you told me that he was taking off the triple threes uh, at the end of his rookie contract, I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, you can run offense through him, both as a ball handler. Or through you know horn sets you know, in the same like you know way that like Chris Finch is using Cat or um, Denver's using Jokic like that's the level of processing ability he has and he's also uh, just a like a symphony on defense just knowing where rotation should be knowing how to stop them the ability to move his feet um, like center isn't necessarily the least valuable position it's just the place where you can get the most like average like the level of average guy who's just out of the league is really really high so if your center is going to be good like if your center is great it's fantastic but there's a lot of guys who are um capable of giving good playoff minutes just sort of laying around is is probably the best way of saying it and with mobley you can play him with uh pretty much anybody and you can develop him as you please if you want him to sort of like replicate the the career arc of jeremy grant where he's just added a little more perimeter skill, and then now you can sort of throw him as you please. Uh, that's a, certainly a possibility if you want to use him as um, as a like Jokic style hub. You can do that. If you asked him to uh, shoot, you know, eight threes per thirty six, uh, he's start, certainly capable of doing that. So I think that like with Mobley, it's not a question of like can you develop him and Isaiah Stewart. It's like yes, you totally can. But like, which version of Mobley are we talking about? And not everybody is willing to get strange enough to like have a uh, a generational big man take a whole bunch of threes in their rookie year or in their you know their early years. But like that's certainly a possibility for him. Like no one should be as good at blocking shots and contesting around the rim without fouling as he is as a teenager. Um, it's like basically mind bending stuff. Um, but here we are. Like no big should no big should be this level of passer, um, or like have these movement skills. But like here we are. In any other year, Mobley would be the runaway number one, uh, just because like what he does is is so unique, um, while also having like the physical profile that he does. Um, so I think that from a Pistons perspective, um, like you can absolutely throw them out for a whole bunch of minutes. You just have to ingrain in the idea of like which you know which version of Mobley is for the minutes he's on the court with Isaiah Stewart versus like just him and Isaiah versus him and Jeremy 
you know, uh, versus him and Sadiq. Like you can basically get two or three different players out of Evan Mobley uh, based on who he's sharing the court with at, at the three and the four. Yeah, the that fluidity, I think, is what makes him special in my eyes. But I, I wonder about the strength, right? The His frame is not like... He doesn't look like he should add like another like 50 pounds, right? And he's what, 215 no. right now? Yeah, I think he's listed around there. Yeah. And so it's like, should he, like, uh, AD is 250. Uh, who else is 250? Ayton. Ayton is 250. And Ayton's like, Ayton is, so, is so much bigger than 250. That, that seems like one of those things where, like, Aiden, he's just like, yeah, don't, don't measure me anymore. I don't care. Ayton's listed at 250. We'll go with that yeah. then. Uh, and so, and like, we've seen, and I've we've seen skinny dudes who can't rebound be Jaren. relegated. Yeah, Jaron. I was yeah, Jaron. Because I'm a because I'm a Michigan State guy, and and B like because I, and I watched him pretty closely, and B like that's not that's not a terrible you know uh, result if that what Mobley ends up being. It's not uh, Jaron with better defense, right? With the preternatural with the preternatural defensive ability. That's not like a terrible player, but that does feel underwhelming in the sense of like what he could have become. But I, I wonder if that's what he gets slotted into just because uh, you, you can play him and drop, you can pl- you can switch him, you can do all these things, but you need like uh, you need some wings who can rebound around him. Uh, otherwise it's just not going to work. Yeah. I mean, I think that part of why Jaron is so difficult is also we didn't say, see Jaron this year really. So like, we don't that's know fair. what, what that counter looks like. I mean, the thing I'll say is that Mobley is built much better than Jaron. Um, like he may not get up to a big number, but he moves so much better, which is nuts to say about Jaron, but like Mobley is a straight switch guy. Like you, well, Jaron moves I, really funkily anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But like Mobley was being able to switch onto college ones with like out problem. Just being like, yeah, I'm on an island against a you know a, a high major division one guard, and like they're in trouble. And like Jaron can switch, and I think that oftentimes like there's a fetishization of bigs who can switch versus bigs who are like at an advantage when switching, which is basically the rarest thing, the rarest capability you'll find for um, for true bigs. And that's the level of movement skill we have. So even if he doesn't get up to like 250, 260, if he can retain his movement skills be in a place where there are some other strong guys around him um, and just add as much offensive. Like I also think that he's going to be a much better offensive player than Jaron because like Jaron doesn't have the passing chops in, in the same way that um, in the same way that uh, Mobley does. So I think that there, I think that like if he's turbo Jaron, so like 10, like 10% better rebounder, 10% better switcher, 10% better passer. Like that's now an incredible player. Yeah. Yeah, the the way I've been thinking about Mobley is Miles Turner, who can get his own buckets, and it's like yeah. that that that'd be a really really good player. That's the limiting factor on Miles Turner's career. So, and I've, he's an all defense candidate. I've thought of him as like, uh, uh, I mean, like it's very unfair, but I know that you'll appreciate this. But like, he's the closest thing I've ever seen to high school sheet. Like he's not wired the same way. Like he's definitely like, not wired the same way. Like, but in terms of like, you can just see them mentally processing like multiple plays ahead, and like, if he's 
another shot at Sheed, just in terms of like that unique mix of movement skills, of mentality. Like the way that he approaches defense is very Sheed like, where he just like he's able to funnel people exactly where he wants them, wait for mm-hmm. them to do something wrong, and then just go get the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, it's weird that he's, you know, that we're in a year where Kate is so special that we just like, don't talk about like Mobley because every time you get further down the Mobley, like, what do you see here? You get into some really scary spaces where you're describing a player. You're like, uh, so that guy that everyone like freaked out about like five years ago, he's like a dramatically better version of that. And that player also had a pretty wild, uh, developmental curve as he grew into his body. Like, Oh, um, I, I do understand why teams have, you know, mo- why there are you know, quite a few teams that have mobile one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, next guy is Kaminga. So I really liked Kaminga coming into this year um, just because the that's the classic draft riser, right? The, the frame, the youth, the, uh, the ability to project him to do anything you want him to do on offense. And then he actually started playing some games. And he was inefficient and inconsistent and perhaps not utilized in the Brian Shaw sucks as a coach. And so I don't think that that was a great developmental situation for Kaminga in particular. Uh, But I also wonder if his inefficiencies and his inconsistencies have. uh, I wonder if I wonder if the frame has basically just made him the fifth. We've like locked him into this fifth overall pick. And like that's maybe not necessarily like where he should go. Um, so we're talking about Detroit specifically here, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Detroit should should not even think about it in, in the top eight. Like, absolutely not. Um, we talked about like collective organizers, and like Kuminga is a player who like has these incandescent highs. So like the the team takeover game uh, in high school where he played Cade and he gave Cade forty. It's the best he's ever played. Watching that, you're like, oh, this guy might be better than Kate. And then you watch some of the G League games, and you're like, okay, so he might not need another year in the G League. And like that's a whole, not a whole nother year in the G League. Yeah. And to me, like, because of the way that Detroit is specifically constructed, and they have multiple other players who are sort of on a similar pathway, it's difficult to set up the game easy for Kuminga, where he can take advantage of his tools within the way they are currently set up without like, you know, Harden suddenly showing up and being like, I actually only want to play for Detroit. There's just not a way of uh, capitalizing on the developmental, like, the the developmental pathway to get to that incandescent version of Kuminga with the way they're currently set up. And like, they would basically just draft, be drafting like a second version of Seku who's probably more raw. Um, because like, I, I, I did like Seku more than I like Kuminga currently. And like Seku needs a very similar circumstance. And he, I would say that Seku is not getting that circumstance. So adding another player of the same developmental requirements to, to reach their, their ceilings doesn't make sense. I mean, on the other hand, Kuminga, you know, is a Francophone. So like he does, he does fit into the, that particular trend. <laughs> that is, that is um, true. But I, I just, get my notice, yeah. Um, I just don't think that this is a, uh, you know, it's not the right time. It, it's not a you thing. It's not a them thing. It's just, it, it's the wrong time for, you know, two different people. I, I think this is just one of those situations. Like, yes, the, the potential is high, but Detroit is not set up without uh, a lot of trades to really get the best out of him and should kind of put down that illusion. 
On the other hand, hear me out. You play Kuminga and Seku together on at the cruise, on the cruise, and you just have the most exciting random Tuesday nights in the G League humanly possible. Okay, I I hear you. You need somebody like that's the thing is that you can do that. You can totally do that, but you also need to have somebody setting that up. Yeah. So like it's not like you can I I believe, I mean we're going to talk about this at a later point, but like, I believe that teams should invest more in draft picks. So it's like, look, if you're going to draft a guy early, like you should also make sure you have like a point guard who knows that like his job is to make sure this kid develops and a coach who's like, Hey, look, this is the thing that really, really matters at our G league roster. And like, these are the shots he's going to take. Don't let him take anything else. Like that's the level of institutional investment you need to have. You also can't really do that for like three or four guys. So like, it's difficult to give that level of, of investment to, you know, uh, a Killian and a Sekou, um, you know, you have guys like Sadiq who are pretty set and do exactly what they do. But for the mm-hmm. most part, like this team is very much still feeling itself out. And to add another player who's still very ethereal in their ability to make an impact on a day to day or a, a moment to moment basis uh, is, is, is a lot for any coach, even in the best of circumstances. You can just only have so many things that are uncertain, so many like high level tasks to be done. Yeah. Very, very theoretical. I guess so, now just. I have a better idea though. So instead of like, if you want to have as much fun with the cruise as possible, just draft Eve Pons. And that would be, Nope, Nope. I'm in. We're done. Yes. Yep. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Eve Pons is uh, uh, maybe like the most fun player in college basketball for like the last four years. He is uh, just a truly ludicrous athlete who believes that he can block every single shot. And also believes he can like dunk basically everything. So he just throws himself into blocks. He's probably like six, seven, but he plays like a center. He's a two foot leaper. Uh, he's also like the strong, like the most cut person in the entire world. Um, it's just, it's jacked human, just ridiculous weight room gains. And um, he shows up in like everybody's mixtapes. Cause he tries to like chase, you know, every block down. He will try to punch every single alley-oop. He tries for every steal. Yeah, um, I can't recommend him as an experience, but also like he's a really interesting second round guy or you know UDFA guy because he's a he's a culture setter, to put it mildly. Pistons have three second round picks, so I am yeah, definitely just, just in. pencil that in. Yes, absolutely. So I guess at this point, though, we are talking in a roundabout way about developmental circumstances, and I guess that means I should ask you your evaluations of the Pistons developmental circumstances like how the the job you think they have done this year in developing their young guys in developing Killian in developing Sadiq in developing even a guy like uh you know Frank Jackson who we kind of alluded to earlier as one of the only two good shooters on this team and if you had told me that when they signed him I would not have believed you right so um I mean Killian's hard to say like I think that the next 300 minutes will be more insightful in the last 500 just because like it just takes the NBA is so hard for guards especially when you're on a team that you know at at the start of the season has uh, a super high usage guy and then that guy gets traded before you come back and you have to figure out a whole new ecosystem Um, so I'll I'll set Killian aside for now Um, I think that I think that Sadiq is is being used really well my worry with Sadiq was that like someone is trying to give him a whole bunch of like ball handler usage that he like wasn't ready for mm-hmm. um, the Villanova guys are always smart and they make like good reads with the ball in their hand, but like there's an upper limit on 
how much they can like you can feed them in terms of you know reps before yeah. they're like oh come on this isn't this isn't wise and he's it's also just, not like the most fluid athlete i've ever yeah. seen yeah yeah i mean like he's a, a great shooter and i think he is the sort of guy that like good teams have a, always have like he fits the archetype of what is extremely useful in the playoffs but that's also like not necessarily a player who's great for bad teams if that makes sense because then you give them too much usage and you know they look a little inefficient. Like how many times have we seen, you know, the Warriors or the Spurs or whatever, get a guy that the, uh, you know, the lottery teams can't use and suddenly they look awesome in a playoff series. It's, it's essentially a tale as old as time now. Um, this is, this is my Bruce Brown fear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, Stewart. Yeah. And, and Stewart, I think that like, I always thought Stewart was going to shoot. Um. Can I ask what you make of his free throw uh, shooting versus like his three point shooting? Because that was like the, that's been the most fascinating thing since he was like a junior in high school. He needs. Uh, hmm. He really needs to stick that foot in the ground to get those threes up. And that doesn't always happen. The, the footwork needs to be precise in a manner that. Um, the footwork needs to be the way he's practiced it. Otherwise mm-hmm. it's not, it's not a good idea. And that has prevented him, I think from taking more threes in a way that I would have liked to see him take, you know, we, I don't know. I don't know which games you were watching, but the, the Dallas game, right. The, it was like last week or so. Um, he really punished uh, Powell and Boban down the stretch of that game with with some threes some pick and pop threes because they weren't willing to come out on him at all because he's a 19 year old rookie and i understand why why they wouldn't do that but uh but then you you watch him try a similar shot against charlotte and because it's not from straight away and because his footwork is like slightly off it's got no chance as soon as it leaves his hand and so i would like to see him i would like to see him get more fluid in that way with the footwork. I would like to see him get uh, better. I'd like to see him get better at taking shots he's uncomfortable with, but I understand that like, this is not, that's probably, that's an off season thing that is not going to happen right now as we, you know, play the last eight games of the season. Yeah. I would say that if he can get his three point rate to like 15 by the end of the year, that would be progress. I mean, the, the Dallas game is his most three point attempts. He took five. Mm-hmm. He has four and two other games. The issue for me when I watch him shoot isn't just like the footwork. It's the like he just has games where he's you know he's not going to shoot, or like stretches where you just know he is not going to shoot. Like we have multiple games in here where it's you know four games out of three, three games out of three, five games out of three. These are almost like 120, 130 minutes, and like some of these are not close games, and you can just watch him catch it. His feet aren't set perfectly, and instead of shooting out of a slight discomfort. He needs it to be perfect and perfect is allowed to be the enemy of good for his development. And, you know, I, he's very much a, uh, a guy who's, you know, programmed to win and uh, has sort of been held up as like one of the gold standards of USA basketball in terms of like, this is just this, the, the perfect locker room guy, you know, um, much to the um, chagrin of James Wiseman. He was always held up as like a guy who was wired differently growing up. And I think that just somebody needs to put his arm around him and be like, Hey man, we're going to lose these games. So uh, if you don't 
take two threes in this game, you're going to have to pay, you know, every vet in here 50 bucks. <laughs> Cause like, that's just, that's just how it has to be for some people. It's like, Hey, like, do you, do you want to take two threes in this game or do you want to pay, pay out $3,000? Like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'll shoot. No problem. Um, because like it, his, his want to make the right play or like a good play is sometimes getting in the way of his necessary development, which is to take a, what's most likely mathematically a bad shot. Just like a somewhat contested three, but it's also necessary. You just need game reps in a way that's like you can't really put a a, a numerical value on. Like, look, you're gonna have to take 500 bad threes to take 400 okay threes to eventually get up to like taking what we would all consider like a great three. And I think his form is is very uh, replicable outside of the the when he gets out of messy when he gets out of like somewhat messy footwork, he'll just he won't take them. But like, I mm-hmm. just need to see him shoot out of bad footwork. Um. The, the free throw thing is very strange. Um, I don't get why it's two different shots. I never have. Um, the percentages are still good, but like, I don't know. It's just it's it, it, to me it's a it's a mental block. Much like there's the mental block on uh, getting up and up volume. I mean his his value just in terms of setting a tone and letting people know that like you're not going to punk Detroit is very uh, endearing. And I think the thing that it's a thing that like does have value. Um, like actual value, not just in like this is who yes. we are. But it, it's not, but just, not like, just psychic, not just psychic value, right? Yeah, because I mean, like I think that there's always a, a, a an affectation towards like wanting to be a tougher team, but like it says something when like people go through the lane and they feel that ball in their chest. It's like I do not want to do that again. That yeah. that was not fun, and, and then maybe maybe next time they don't run that cut as hard and because they don't cut as hard. The next defender doesn't rotate a quarter step, and that quarter step allows them to contest three. That three contest allows you know a miss, and like this, there's a knock-on effect of bringing an intensity to a game that like goes beyond the like this guy plays hard. You in the in the Clippers game, you could see Demarcus Cousins be like, I can't believe I have to deal with this kid. Uh, there was there was a Sixers game earlier this year where Dwight Howard was like I like what what are you doing like please like please just let me grab the rebound on this free throw and that that's just not how he's wired and yeah. there there is psychic value to that but I also do think that like yes that that is a tangible on court thing that affects how the game is played and ha- and as such has like actual actual value in the game of basketball yeah i think that the other thing that like is important that like is is very hard to to demonstrate is that like basketball's a job Right. And like the reason why the vet, like vets specifically get mad at Stewart is like, dude, this is a Tuesday and y'all are bad. Like, come on. <laughs> like, we have a gentleman's agreement. I'm going to let you get some rebounds. You can let me get some rebounds. He's like, no, I'm going to, these are all my rebounds. They're like, dude, I don't want to do this. You guys are not good. Like, don't make me try. But like, while we see that as like, oh, look at the plucky Pistons. Like, why do they play good teams so hard? Uh, and it's like, well, because that's the mentality he brings every day at practice. And like, then because you, you practice that way, even though again practice is pretty limited in, in the NBA, like he, that mentality transfers to basically every other team activity, and while we see it in games, its most important value is actually just like how you show up to your job, and like that intensity being brought to film rooms and standards being set, and like, I mean, I've been around like bad NBA teams before, and like it's miserable, and to have somebody who tries who's like trying to punk Demarcus Cousins, like that's a thing that people can point to that brings real value of like, yeah, we might have lost this game, but like. Rook really tried to kill that guy. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Uh, where was I going to go? Oh, back to the draft. 
Detroit Detroit has a twenty percent chance to pick sixth currently. Who is the highest upside guy that the Pistons could get outside of the top five? Okay, so I chose to interpret this as uh, who would help the Pistons the most in terms of rather than like who could be the best player. Okay. Like I think that I think that that's like you can have like there's a lot of fun names for that. You know, Jalen Johnson, Jaden Springer, Moses Moody. I went a little bit further down the draft board for a okay, person who does. Later, you're going to have to pitch me on Jalen Johnson, but I don't get it. But continue. Okay. Um, so I'm going to pitch somebody who does the specific thing that uh, that Detroit struggles with, which is just creation. Um, I'm going to say that the highest ceiling play is drafting Sharif Cooper. The little dude who can't defend? Uh, the person who puts two feet in the paint on every single possession and probably the best passer on the draft. Okay. The, the weight that he puts on like passing is something that like, I really, you don't see from basketball players. It's almost like a soccer thing. Like I saw him throw three alley-oops this year where he threw it before the person had started their run to like go for the lob. They had like just realized that they were open. The ball was already out. So the pitch for Sharif is that like the Pistons don't have anybody who really creates advantage consistently and they're overloaded on strength. And in theory, like shooting is a thing that this draft you can get a lot of later. And I'm sure we'll talk about like my pitch is that if you picked Sharif and then a whole bunch of dudes who shoot later, you would have a team that's strong enough to cover for him, his physicality. He would get in the paint on every single possession. You can fix the jumper in time. I honestly don't think it's that bad. But the two problems are guys who can create for other people and passing. And he checks both of those boxes along with working really well with Kelly long term. Okay. I don't. Is it, oh, is it sexy? Not particularly, but it would be extraordinarily fun. Yeah. And, and also like he does a thing that nobody else on, on this roster does. I don't hate it immediately. I also don't see Troy Weaver picking somebody with that frame that just like does not compute in his brain. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you on that. <laughs> I mean, I get that he's not going to be um, a, a morning glory all-star. Yes. Like he's not, he's not going to come into the, uh, come into the combine, uh, put up 225 like 37 times or whatever. Um, the thing that I think teams will be in love with is the fact that Sharif Cooper wins basketball games. Um, in the same way that like he was the point guard for the Isaac Coro teams. And so he didn't lose. That's right. He didn't lose a basketball game for, or like a, a, you know, a, he didn't lose a basketball game for like a sophomore year until like midway through his senior year, I want to say. Um, and his senior year was basically just him. Uh, because Coro and had already left for all them. Yeah. Um, so like straight winner, um, Incredible passer. And like the thing about strong dudes is once you have a certain amount of them, they can cover for other people. Uh, and so it allows you to get away with having a slider guy because like what, if you have a bigger guard, you just put Killian on him. And if there's one thing this league has, it's like guys you can hide guards on because like the, the twos in the league are like basically half of them don't do anything. They just run around screens and shoot. So you can always find somewhere to hide him. And you always have, you know, a, ba- a back line of strong guys who are willing to clean up. If you want to pitch a, if if Sharif fixes the jumper, which I think he will long term, just guys with that level of passing, uh, 
touch generally fix their jumpers, at least to like a mediocre degree. And the fact that dudes can't stay in front of him, even though he's, you know, built really slender and they pad him to shoot and he still lived at the rim in the SEC. The strongest, you know, weight rooming conference in America. And he walked to the rim every single time he played against Kentucky, against Bama. Like it was easy street. So, and he got to the line. I think he had like a 55% free throw rate. Yeah, he got to the line an insane amount. Yeah. Uh, I, look, if you want to pitch me on the top like 5% outcomes for this team and how it's currently constructed, I think Sharif Cooper is that choice. See, this is, this is why I brought you on because I don't think anybody else would have given me that answer. Actually, maybe maybe Brian Schroeder would have given me that answer. But anyway, <laughs> we we do we do share a uh, a sympathetic relationship on this particular concept of being that like yeah, Sharif is killing these guys. No one's paying attention to like exactly how hard it is to score in the SEC. Like like people were talking about like oh, will Saban's you know first will Saban Lee's first step transfer? It's like yes, yes, he he, he might have been at a you know a school that wasn't fantastic, but like. If you can, if you have the physical tools to get to the rim in the SEC, that's a pretty solid amalgam for like how strong guys are in the NBA. Like you know, every conference has its own you know idiosyncratic like idiosyncratic approach. Um, you know, teams in the SEC like to play a lot of zone, you know, Pac-12 schools don't necessarily play a ton of defense. You know, all of these perceptions. But like, if your physical tools translate in the SEC, they generally translate in uh, in the pros. And yeah, if he can survive there with that frame, interesting. Talk me out of taking Kai Jones at like six or seven. Okay, so you like you have to score points to win basketball, right? True. And I don't think that like like Kai is uh, an embryonic version of an extremely interesting wing, like wing forward huh. Jeremy Grant. See thing. that that's interesting because when when I watch him, I see embryonic Christian Wood. I think that with his movement skills, you can kind of push him towards either direction. The okay. difficulty is that like Texas doesn't allow their wings. Like basically if you're not a one or a two at Texas, you're not allowed to make any decisions. So like they're really far behind on like just the, the amount of processing they've done. So like Greg and, and Kai both like just, I would say if you just had to count how many decisions they have to make in a basketball game, it's probably the lowest of almost any like non straight lob center. That's just the way that the, the offensive uh, alignment works in Texas uh, under Shaka. So I think that there are some, like there's a possibility that he is a wing just because like if you have that level of movement skills and the wings, the most valuable position, like why wouldn't you want them to do that? Like it, wing, movement skills plus shooting, yeah. it's like, cool, like you're a wing now. Yeah. Like you can always play some Why not just do. try it? Yeah. Yeah, why not try it? Um, I mean, I think that the reason why is like you kind of be punting on Seiko. Um, cause that's like, again, generally the profile of Seiko and you can't play those guys and you can't necessarily move Sadiq up to the three. Like you're betting. Okay. What you'd really be betting on is that there's a whole bunch of really good guards in the 2022 draft and the 22 to 22 draft is really bad for guards. Like really, really bad. for guards. I will take your word for it. I've not thought a second about the 22. Draft. I mean, it matters. Like you know, teams absolutely. are aware. Teams are, it's like if there's a whole bunch of like, I mean, there's a, like last year there was no wings, right? So media, like w- wings that would have gone like the mid 20s to 30s this year went in the teens. 
except for Desmond Bain, a thing I'll never be able to explain. Um, <laughs> again, I've, I've berated no, a number of people about it. They None of them have answers. Um, so, like, in every draft, you sort of have these, like, economies where if there's a, a shortage, like, basically the, you know, even the, the mediocre ones would get bumped out. And so next year, like, every, like, somebody, a wing is go, or a guard is going to have to go first of the guards, and it's not going to be particularly pretty. Um, so, like, if you're betting on next year's guards and you are bad, which I think you most likely would be, you're putting a whole bunch of stock into a draft that is probably not faithful in that particular area. So I think that Troy Weaver would be worried about losing his job. Already. Wow. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm, there is, there is a, uh, there's a particularly, uh, a particularly outspoken poster on our board who has a, a motto for Troy Weaver is like, either I draft Cade or I draft Amani or I get fired. Those are my three options. And I, I don't disagree with that. Right. Like if you, if you don't get those, if you don't uh, end up with one of those high outcome guys, it is more likely than not that in time, you know, like you, the team will want to move on and try something different, even though you could have not necessarily done anything wrong. We're seeing that in Indiana right now, honestly, like Indiana did as best they could for, you know, 12 years. And it looks like the wheels are finally coming off. Um, yeah, we're seeing that in Portland as well, where it's like something eventually has to give, and yeah. and it's like so if if the G like it can part of a GM's job is keeping their job. So if the GM is really ingrained to the owner, they'll keep their job. If the st- if like the 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 core can't be moved for you know one reason or another, whether it's value or you know attachment or the idea that they can always run it back, then it's the coach. And like eventually something will give, and like I think that if you are betting on multiple years. Like Amani's the twenty twenty three draft. Um, is the idea that like because Amani's local, you got to have him, or is that the main pitch? I th- I think that's part of it. Um, okay. I think what uh, what year is the French guy? Uh, Victor, Next what's year. his name? Next year? Uh, no, no, he's twenty twenty three. He's okay. the same year as he's the same year as Amani. Okay. Uh, and I'm not wholly sold on chat yet but i have not taken a yeah, hard look. yeah. so I, I i have not taken a good hard look at chat either uh again can't think two years in front of my face but it's like again if you if you don't get one of those guys something has to give in time yeah yeah i so, mean no, especially it's been like one of the like stars even like the idea of a star will buy you time as a gm because like people just don't want to damage a star by moving too much around. Like if you give somebody too many coaches, like we see this more in football. Um, like if you have, if a, if a quarterback has too many coaches or too many offensive coordinators, like they're sort of screwed no matter how like talented they are. And just, you're asking them to do too much. So I think that if uh, basically if you draft a Cade or, you know, you get a first overall pick that isn't, uh, doesn't go completely sideways. Um, you're basically guaranteeing yourself a couple of extra years just to like hold everything in place. Yeah. Um, you giving me terrible Jason Campbell flashbacks. I'm very sorry. <laughs> so you just did a hour long breakdown on your Twitch channel and your YouTube channel on Usman Garuba. Um, how high would you pick Usman if you were the Pistons? And if you were another team, 
how much would it suck to face a Isaiah Stewart, Usman Garuba frontcourt? Uh, yeah, it'd be a bloodbath. It'd be just like prime Nick, Fo- Nick Foley, everything running down the face, cage match bloodbath. Um, Garuba is a is a like a sort of strange fit because he is uh, an extremely strong like long term wing. He's kind of a four right now. He he plays for Real Madrid, where he's not asked to do that much historically. Mm-hmm. Um, they sort of play him as like a, a four and a, or a small ball five because he can switch onto you know multiple positions. Uh, really long arms, really quick hands. Um, I think he is what a lot of people think Scotty Barnes is um, in terms of oh. like being a quick tw- being being a quick twitch athlete and like being a wing long term. Um, but he also like he comes from you know the ACB where the expectation is to win, so he's not being asked to do much. It's you know knock down open threes, roll to the rim, finish. You know guard who you can. Uh, you play sort of according to the need and to, to you know rotation of, of bodies because they played 73 games this year so far like it's just a, a wild sample size we have for him um the difficulty is that like uh by the time that we did that breakdown he had run four pick and roll possessions in those 73 games just not asked to do that at all and he has like i think good reads on high lows um, a solid, you know, feel for the game at, at the wing position, but just that's not within the circumstances you like that they're asking for him because they're trying to, you know, win in the two most difficult leagues, ACB and, and EuroLeague outside of the NBA. Um, so I think that if you're drafting him, um, you're lining up another strong, uh, super high defensive feel uh, combo forward um, who can play some five. I mean, he's sort of like, you know, the middle point between Garuba or between Stewart and Seiko in terms of like the strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, him and Stewart would just be just gorgeous defensive rotations back to back to back. Um, but he also needs somebody to set things up for him um, because he's still very much learning what his position will be at the next time or at, at the next, you know, three or four years in the same way that like what Seiko is is very much in the air. Um, I think that he has a much higher ceiling than he's generally credited for. Um, just the ability to produce as he has um, for you know the past couple of years. Uh, he's uh, he won the Spanish U16 MVP at age 14 with roughly the same body, which uh, is one of the wilder uh, like prodigy accomplishments to to win. You know, like U16 is. I would say a better level than, than like U16 EYBL here, just because it's in a national competition and he wanted to like two and a half years younger than, than the average competition level. <laughs> it's just like, he's just throwing these kids around and like, he might be two years younger. You're like, man, you got to get him out of here. Can we play some 18 year olds? It's unfair. Um, yeah. So if you, if you want to lean into like Detroit bloodbath where like people are just desperately do not want to play against the team that tries so hard and like, will not give you an inch. Like the, the scoring will be a little bit rough. Um, but like just the, the the gorgeous defensive rotations and the absolute violence that uh, people would feel on the defensive class, that'd be fun. A, I love Detroit blood, bloodbath as like a name, as a I, as a slogan, as a mentality. I love that. B, if this were 1999, like I, ooh, oh my god, <laughs> yeah, see, but. But it's not right. It is 2021. See, okay, that's the difference between Scotty Barnes and him. Is that like Scotty Barnes is that? Like Scotty Barnes 
has really, really struggled to shoot and has, you know, for five or six years now. Like, I mean, I, I saw Scotty for the first time when he was in ninth grade. Like Garuba has the potential to play wing in a way that Scotty does not because he has actual twitch. And he has like fair, he has solid movement skills. He struggles a little bit with deceleration, but like there is a wing very much in there. It just needs reps. Or like mm-hmm. if you picked Scotty, like it's 1999. Like, you know, it's the Knicks Heat Eastern Conference Finals where like the scores are in the 50s. But like with Garuba, it's not, it's not like committing to that offensively. It's that like you're going to need to have a pretty ugly period where he's getting to dribble for the first time really ever as a wing. And it's in an NBA game. And so, not every and not every team is built for that struggle. Yeah. So you think Scotty's just a flat five? He's just a oh, straight five. Straight okay. five. Hmm. Okay. That knocks him down a little bit. Uh I have not watched him very closely. I was pitched on the shooting equity. If that's not feasible, then like, yeah, that that okay. limits what he's capable of uh, extremely. The issue is that Scotty's a bad athlete. Like he has super long arms, but like he has no pop. He's like fine laterally. He can change directions, like, but he mostly gets bought on the fact that he's strong. Like, uh, if you watch like his his dunk mix, and you're like, if his arms are three inches shorter, like if he were just like a, <laughs> if he were just like a regular NBA wingspan rather than being like you know super lanky conk wingspan, like he might be missing some of these dunks. That's the level of athlete he is, and like. I, it also is important to note that like guys that come from super pedigreed backgrounds, so like they've been in Team USA since they were fourteen, and you know went to Montford. Like those guys have been exposed to really high level training regimens, and if that hasn't unlocked some, like and also Florida State, which again, pretty yeah, well. Florida State great at that kind of thing. Yeah, and he still doesn't have real pop. Like that's a concern that an NBA team is going to be able to get out of it, considering he's basically been an under an athletic microscope since he was in middle school. That's that's a more difficult proposition to me than like, can you teach his Garuba to like dribble and be like, hey, it's okay if you shoot here. Like, if you don't shoot, we're gonna yell at you. Like to me, that seems like a much easier like both proposition and like you know ordering of the world. Yeah. Okay, so we I promised we'd get back to this. Pitch me on Jalen Johnson. I don't get okay. it. He's a very very weird dude to just like even watch. And yes. the few times I watched him live. Uh, he did not perform like I watched him against Michigan state because I was watching, you know, my team play and then watched him against UNC because that's, I live in North Carolina and I have to watch that game. So yeah. Okay. So like Jalen Johnson has had a very strange past two years. Um, he started to, he was going to go to IMG for his senior year of high school. And then like that didn't end up working out. So then he only played like 10 games of a senior year of high school. Then went to Duke. Uh, the Duke fit was very strange. They had a lot of power forwards and played all of them at the same time. Um, and then they also like sometimes asked him to be a ball handler. Um, the pitch here is that he's like a playmaking four who like sort of, is a playmaking four on defense. Like, I don't mean that. Like, I just mean like, it's difficult because he's not, he's sort of between defensive archetypes. Right. Like the idea with Ben is that like with Ben Simmons, like who he's frequently compared to is like, if you really want to, Ben Simmons can either play three or five on defense. Like you can put him on an Island or, you know, in certain circumstances, you can have him just play five and go super small around him. And like Jalen can't quite do either one of those things. So he's sort of, um, it's not that he's a bad defender. He's just not, you don't necessarily feel comfortable with him 
on an island or as like he's not you know a rim protector in that way against uh really high level competition like his he he looks like a great five against like some of the worst teams they play but you don't really feel comfortable with him like you know in 15 consecutive possessions of drop or you know blitzing i think that he's a jack of a lot of trades um some of which are extremely valuable like he's a really really good passer but his handle is, is funky at times. He's, he can, you know, play really high. The jumper is developing. Um, it's a lot better than it was when I first saw him. Um, Wait, really? Yeah. Oh. He just, okay. he used to not shoot. Like, he had to be, like, wide, wide open. And teams would just go all the way under on stuff. Um, he's going to uh, be an interesting guy to, like, see how teams react to it. Because, like, you'll get a really wide, like, some people really like are willing to throw the Duke sample away and be like, he was awesome in UIBL. And, you know, uh, like whatever happened at Duke is not really important to us. And you have the other end where it's like, well, why was this guy like, you know, sometimes great and sometimes terrible in college and then left. Um, I think that he's closer to like top 10 for me, just in terms of like, he's an interesting value proposition, but I I think that uh, you're right to be, flummoxed by him because like none of his stats make a ton of sense for me he doesn't he doesn't get fouled a lot his usage rate is high he he turns the ball over a fair amount but he like also fouls a lot on defense which is like it can be good but can also be bad like you just like everything about his numbers you do get a clear picture and then when you watch him it's even worse like usually you get one or the other where you're like okay this doesn't make sense on paper but when you watch the games you can sort of see what's happening but like it's just it's really really hard to get a proper feel, and I think that that's going to allow him to fall into a circumstance where a team has a more clear picture and has like a more defined usage for him with pieces around him that make sense. Yeah, I mean, I, so like obviously the first time I've watched him, like I I have heard the Ben Simmons comparisons too, and it's like okay, he's like sixty five seventy percent as good at Ben Simmons as everything. It's like the reason Ben Simmons is Ben Simmons is not only because he's um, like, he's got a better mentality and he's taller, but it's also because like, he's a much, much better athlete. And so if you, if you, if you're not as skilled and you're not as athletic and you're not as tall as I, I don't know what kind of player as as Ben Simmons, like I don't know what kind of player you are. It's like Kyle Anderson, like maybe, and yeah. Like, but like but that like, would I, I wanted as like maybe that's just my brain like slotting like thing I can't categorize next to other thing I can't categorize. Yeah, I mean, like basically the best argument you can make for him is that he's unprecedented, and that like the modern game is just spawning things that like there are not clean comparisons for. Um, the problem is that like if you truly want to make that argument, like you have to point to something and it's mm-hmm. like, okay, so he's not quite Kyle or he's not slow-mo, but he's also not Ben. It's like, okay, so he should shoot more threes. He doesn't necessarily do. That. And like the, the most, I, I generally find beat to percentage until you get to like, you know, 300 attempts, 400 attempts, 500 attempts to be pretty meaningless. I mostly just look at how often you shoot. Cause like if you shoot 60% from three, but you take, you know, a half an attempt a game, it tells me you think you can't shoot or your coach thinks you can't shoot. Otherwise you'd be shooting more. And like, he's never really taken a high volume or made a really high percent. You know, his free throw rate is low, which is the most damning athletic thing for him. Like if he's Ben or Kyle, like they lived at the rim and, you know, Kyle doesn't seem like somebody who's like 
overwhelming athlete, but he's so physical that like smaller guards just have to foul him. And so like he basically has to be a better shooting version of like the midpoint of those two guys. And at that point, like we're talking about such a fraught thing that you need to fall to go to a place that knows exactly what they're doing. It's a really distinctive elemental play. Yeah. So, which like, uh, which is great because I mean, like, second contract. Once once you're past the first two picks, like, second contract greater than symbol, you know, first contract. But that's still like every time you go beyond the first or second contract, there's less likely that a team will invest that heavily in you. And he's a guy who I think does need a lot of investment in terms of like his fit and what exactly they want from him because he's a very strange player. Yeah, and I mean, like, in in that sense, my, like my thought, if I'm a GM, is like if I take this guy in the lottery, I'm getting fired. The The possibility I'm getting fired just went up 20%. And I don't love that. Um, yeah. Uh, speaking of dudes who got people fired, Seku. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, so Seku's had a really odd year. And it's been this is year two of oddities out of Seku. And at this point, I kind of just want to lock in like the 65th percentile outcome for him and just ride that out. But I don't know. Would would that be underselling what he's capable of? Yeah. Um, because like these are two very weird years. Like, not just for him, but like how is he supposed to look better this year? Like structurally, how is that supposed to work? Play with the level of effort and intensity we have seen out of him for the last uh, seven games. Right. But it's really difficult to play with intensity when you also don't know where you're supposed to be. And like one of the reasons why it's good to have, it's really, it's difficult to ask people to play smart and play hard at the same time when they're also learning. Because like, you know, like I think about Gerald Wallace on those Kings teams a lot. Or like he played insanely hard because he knew exactly what he had to do. And they were like, yeah, you have like these four minutes. These are the plays we're going to run. Like, here's what you got to do. Like, it's much harder when you expand that to 30 minutes. It's also like, yeah, um, we don't know who's going to take the most shots tonight. We don't know where those shots are going to come from. Um, we're going to figure out who you're guarding on the fly. We're going to make these adjustments. And now you're asking somebody to do like three or four things at once. And like the stability around him isn't really set up in a way that like, even if he did take a leap, it's really hard to show that because like, they traded the one guy who made everything sort of make sense away. And then the guard who is the drafted sense maker didn't play. Um, and like, I love Jeremy Grant, but like he's an agent of chaos. <laughs> and yes, yes. that's not necessarily what like the NBA is a job. And what people want is to be able to go in at the same time, run the same plays, make the same reads and like get generally the same results. And like agents of chaos do the exact opposite of that. Where it's like, well, sometimes Jeremy Grant's going to do this, but other times he's going to go in and try to do a 360. Other times he's going to go like try to tap the ball in four different times and he's not going to execute his particular uh block boxing out assignment because he's going to see a run out and like that those agents of chaos moments work really well for that player sometimes, but it can also put the other players in a position where they have to, you know, in their heads try to sort out what they think is happening and make adjustments on the fly and like adjustments on the fly can be poison for young wings who are developing. Okay. That's fair. I, so, um, yeah, 65th no. percentile is that like some other team drafts it or second drafts him. Um, that gives like, you know, whatever the price the Pistons ultimately settle on. 
and he looks better in a smaller role where they tell him exactly what he needs to do. And that would make me that would make me disappointed, but not surprised, honestly. Yeah, that seems like like a sixty fifth like I guess the percentile outcome for me seems to be like what price other like the Pistons get. Um, because like I could definitely see this breaking in a way where like he just needed a little more structure in a specific in specific ways. Yeah, I don't think there's anything about him that like screams broken to me. Just like it's weird and they need some stabilization. Yeah, that well, that's that's also part of the reason why I'm not necessarily as worried about his second contract. I'm worried about them offering him a second contract. I'm not necessarily worried about the size of that second contract, right? And I I do think that if it gets to a low enough point, you just retain him, right? Like that's, yeah. that's the whole point of restricted free agency. And yeah, I mean, I don't think that there's going to be like teams hate other te- you know teams hate using free restricted free agency just because like you don't know what could happen and somebody could come in with a crazy offer. But, like I just don't think that's going to happen for him. Yes, and he's also like, I just want to see him next to some good offensive players for like a twenty game stretch, like where everybody else is solid, and then you could sort of like he's you know all the controls are, are solid for, and then you get to see him. Because every time I see him, I'm just like, he kind of looks like he's drowning. And that's a really hard way to evaluate people. Yeah. 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 Okay. That makes me a little bit more sympathetic than I've been earlier this year. Anyway, PD, it's been like an hour and 15 minutes, man. I did not expect that much from you. And I truly appreciate it. Let the people know where they can find you, where they can find your work, how they can support the amazing analysis that you're doing. Yeah. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at above the break three, um, where uh, I um, say things about basketball um, and spend most of my day hitting refresh. Um, in in that page is a link to my Patreon where uh, I write uh, long form, skill based uh, breakdowns of, of draft prospects. Um, I uh, all the work is always free. Um, I do a, a small series of links for, for patrons um, at like a five buck a month level, I think. Um, and any support that you can throw would be uh, fantastic. Um, I also started doing a, uh, a film room where I get a friend on and we break down a game of uh, a player, put that up on tube and on Twitch or do that like a live every 10 days or so when I can finish uh, each breakdown. That's at twitch.com or twitch.tv slash PD underscore web. Uh, so far, we've done uh, Usman Garuba and Josh Giddy, who's an extremely fun uh, guard out of uh, Australia. Uh, I rarely recommend those. I think that they're a lot of fun and uh, something that other people I don't think uh, are really doing right now. Yeah, and I, I will let everyone know I am a Patreon supporter of PD. He does amazing, detailed work. And every time I read one of his long forms, I learn something. It's not always basketball related, but I definitely learn something. And so I, I highly suggest that you uh, support him and, and what he's doing. Uh, thank of you. course. Thank no, you so man. much. Can I ask you one question? Sure. What's up? Why does this team have so many ugly numbers on it? <laughs> like every, like there, you got some good looking numbers and there's like 28, 38. There's like a 49 hanging around. Like, this, this should be illegal, right? Like, you guys, this can't continue? So, a good number of the good-looking single digits are retired or taken. 
right? Like um, four is Dumars, ten is Thomas, three is Wallace, um, you, like five is taken, seven's taken. Those are the good looking numbers. One is Billups, right? You, um, you, you, it's hard for a guard to look good wearing like two. I That's disagree, a, but so it's a it's a long way for me to get from. Hey, I don't want to take two, so. I would like number 38. Like that's a leap, man. I mean, what's what's a good number for a point guard that's not uh, a 7, 5? 11 is good. That's Isaiah Thomas. Okay, so like I think to me point guard numbers, you got like 0, 1, 2, 3, um, 10, 11, 13. And then you can 13. kind of get to like... 13, I would not, I would not wear 13 personally. Right. But you'd wear 38. No, I wouldn't wear 38 either. I'd wear, I'd wear like 24 before I wore 38. Yeah. I mean like I'd I'd wear 99 before I wore 38. Go full J Crowder. Yeah. Like, cause at this point you can just be like, well, it's a, it's a fun looking number. Like, come on. You're 38, 28. Like this is the problem the Celtics have too, where it's just like, yeah, he's a great player. What number does he wear? 52 no and zero still is like associated with drummond so i understand why you wouldn't necessarily want to wear zero okay but the the thunder gave 35 away like the next year yeah and that was a mistake because who they gave it to like uh Uh, they gave it to like a udfa i'm trying i'm blanking on the name yeah 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 Uh, he went to baylor i think if I'm remembering correctly, it wouldn't have been Quincy. Who would it have been? It will come to me as soon as we finish recording. But yeah, so like, just get get somebody the number zero. Get Beef Stew the number zero. That'd be amazing. Zero or double zero. I think the the current plan from the fan base is for Ben Wallace to show up, like jump into the rafters, bring down three, and like clothe Isaiah Stewart in it, and like then he gets to wear three. That's the plan. okay. So. <laughs> Can I? Get, we'll just close this out with like one of my uh, extreme hot takes. Sure. We shouldn't be like numbers should be honored, but they should be retired. So like, it should mean something that you get to wear eleven in Detroit, and they shouldn't give it to anybody. Like you have to earn that. But like, at a certain point, we're going to run out of good numbers for good players. And it's going to be like, oh, yeah, it's the year 2067, like the best player in Celtics history, number 62, you know, LeBron James Jr. Jr. It's like, you know, killing. We have to look at photos of them in 62. Like, you know, I think I think soccer does this good where, like, number 10 is, like, you know, the, the playmaker number. And, like, if you give it to a scrub, they boo him. They're like, no, you can't do it. Like, you are dis- <laughs> you are disrespecting this shirt for wearing 10. And then people are like, yeah, I don't want to wear 10. Like, People are afraid to put on seven at Manchester United because, like, basically every number seven there is like a Hall of Fame player. They're just like absolutely super cool. So it's like if you if you want to ask for number seven, understand the pressure that comes with it. Like, could you imagine like what it would be like if they took thirty three, like the Celtics thirty three down from the Raptors, and gave it to somebody? Like they'd be shook. They'd be shook. They'd be so scared. Be like, if I let Larry Bird down, like he will come fight me. Like, like literally. Yeah, he literally, will, he will come. He fight will literally come to my house and fight me. Yeah, and I'll probably lose. It's Larry Bird. But, like, that's so much more engaging than, like, 
oh, we have it hanging so nobody else can buy it. It's like, no, like make other people fill your shoes. That's so much cooler. Hmm. I don't know. I've like, I think about college football, right? College football does this where like the, you know, you give the playmaking wide receiver number one. Right. Yeah. And like, sometimes, sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't. And the times at which it doesn't, it's just so tragic that I think it's just better. Yeah, exactly. No, no, one has this. no, I see. I disagree. Like when Braylon Edwards put in work wearing number one, it made sure that he came back and checked every single year. It's like, are you guys giving the number one to some scrub? Cause he was like, again, imagine if you are Percy Harvin's number one after Percy Harvin, what's going to happen. He's going to fight you. Like basically what I'm saying is that I hate our number culture. Cause it like, it makes everything so like stolid and it's more fun if you're afraid of Percy Harvin coming to fight you. I think we should expand our minds to the possibility yeah. that the number 62 is not as ugly as we've made it out to be. Conversely. Sick. I'm so excited for square root 444. <laughs> a thousand years from now. I mean, Deuce, like, Deuce Tatum is going to be playing with some, you know, um, illogical fraction on the front of his jersey because of you. I mean, at, at some point, it'll just be like, okay, this guy has X advertiser, this guy has X advertiser, this guy has X advertiser. And so there won't be any more numbers, right? It'll just be company names. And okay, like, we'll, I would, we'll, we'll know it's Deuce Tatum, but because he's wearing the ATT shirt. like <laughs> I, would, I would rather see somebody wearing their Twitter at where the number used to be than, or like a, a GIF that describes their existence than see somebody play in the number 61. Oh, man. I'm so- in in like 2060 we are going to get like t-shirt gif uh technology that'll yeah. be the day yeah and then you, you're going to come down and be like i made a mistake somebody get mike mike's number out of the rafters from like the wizards <laughs> for whatever reason um yeah uh, and then you'll know that i'm right like this is you've started a black mirror slippery slope all you had to do is give me the number 23 for the bulls and you refused to do it the okay I'm. I don't agree with this, but I do think that the potential for hilarity is absolutely there, because now I'm, I'm thinking like Aaron Gordon would have like absolutely demanded that like he get to wear Shaq's number, and it's like mm-hmm. that. Mm. And then you would have Shaq commenting on things that he deserves to. It wouldn't be him <laughs> being like loud and wrong all the time. He would just say things that are like objectively true. Like he's not as good in that jersey as I was. And you're like, wow, Shaq making some cogent points. This is very strange. <laughs> Like, I just, I feel like you could focus a lot of the, like, old man hatery that, like, old NBA players have, oh. like, except for Iverson. Like, imagine how if somebody were, like, Dr. J's number, instead of talking about his top 25, he would just, like, literally be on TV being like, I was colder in that jersey. And it allows you to appreciate history because suddenly instead of being like, what, I don't, I don't know if that, why do you have these people who played in the black and white times in your top five? It's like, oh, was he actually colder in that New Jersey? It allows us to appreciate history. I'm telling you, take the numbers out of the rafters. Uh, okay. With You're that, warming up to it. I hear, I hear you warming up to it. With that, I'm Lazarus Jackson. You can follow me on Twitter at Last Chance. That's at L A Z C H A N C E. This has been the Pistons versus Everybody podcast, and we will talk to y'all next week. Or no, every other week. Two weeks. I promised. Two weeks. See you then.